This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from John chapter 20. I will be focusing in my message particularly on verses 19 through 23. However, as it is Resurrection Sunday, it would be good for us to hear the entire story. And so I will start in John chapter 20, verse 1, and I will read through verse 23. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had, been, had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive it. Just as your disciples received the Spirit that first Easter Sunday, and were commissioned for, to do the work of your gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray that you would write this word on our hearts, that we would understand your gospel truth, the glorious truth of your resurrection, and that we would live in light of it in a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where all seemed lost? When all the things that you were hoping for, the things you had been working towards, the things you had built your life around, the people that you thought you could always depend on suddenly disappeared. Maybe you experienced the death of someone you love deeply. Maybe you experienced abandonment or betrayal. Maybe you experienced a disaster or some other tragedy. One of the consequences of life in this fallen world is that things do go wrong. Things go terribly, horribly, and traumatically wrong to the point where life doesn't seem like it can be the same, where we can even fall into despair. It was about one year ago, I actually found myself in a situation sort of like this. I had just gone through a difficult rejection. I had been candidating at a church for several months, and it was a place that we had grown to love and thought that I had a realistic shot of receiving the pastoral call, and it didn't happen. And suddenly everything I'd been working for for previous years, all the things in seminary, all the other things leading up to that, it seemed like it was going for naught. I didn't know where we'd go, where we'd live, what I'd do for work. It just all seemed lost. It all seemed chaotic. Now, as you know, this story has a happy ending. It was right after that we actually took some time away, went to Michigan, met with my friend Mark Scaturro, who, Lord willing, you'll get to meet in a couple weeks at my ordination as he's preaching there. And he said, maybe you should come to the OPC. And then it was not long after that, after we got back, I got a call from a guy named Ron Hossel, and the rest is history. So this story, while that was a very dark and difficult time, uh, God worked it all for our good and for his glory, and we're very happy with how it turned out. But sometimes it doesn't always go that way, or when we're in that moment, we can't see past it. We don't know if it's going to work out. We don't know if it's going to be okay. And we can go through all kinds of feelings and all kinds of actions even in moments like this. Maybe we just feel numb, there's this pain, there's this damage, and we can't even get our minds around horrible things that happen in these moments where it seems like all is lost. We can lash out in anger, we can wonder how such a bad thing could happen to us. We can be afraid, we don't know what is next. We don't know how we're going to carry on, and we don't even know what carrying on looks like. We don't know what life is going to be like going forward because it has changed. In the world around us, we're living in a time of chaos that can even help to push us into these states. We 
live in a time where the world is placing itself in deeper and deeper opposition to Christ and to his church. Our nation is buckling under the weight of corruption and our leaders don't even seem to try to hide it anymore. The world plunges deeper and deeper into moral and sexual anarchy, the kind of things that were disgraceful to even speak of just a generation ago. Not only are normal, but we are demanded to celebrate them. We're now even in our country beginning to see targeted violence against God's people for no other reason than they are God's people. They believe what God has spoken in his word and want to apply it and want to practice it. Maybe you're here on this Easter morning and you are in this moment where it feels like all is lost, where it feels like the darkness is closing in, and you're not even sure where hope is going to come from. Well, today we hear a story, a true story, a historical, factual account preserved for us in God's Word of some men who were very much in that moment. They'd built their lives around something. They'd built their lives around someone, Jesus. And Jesus had been taken from them. He was arrested. He was tried. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, if that were the end of the story, I would have no hope to give you today. But there is more to the story. And that is what we will see from the scriptures today. Want to look at this text again, particularly the text in verses 19 through 23. In three points. First, worry. We see this in the first part of verse 19. We see the disciples in a very scary and fearful situation. And then, second, we see wonder. We see this in the end of verse 19 through the beginning of verse 21. We see that worry turn to awe as they realize that their risen Lord is among them. And then third and finally, we will see work. This is from the end of verse 21 through verse 23. In light of this wonder, in light of the glory of the risen Christ, what are they to do next? And we will see in this text that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we have an eternal hope that inspires a spirit-empowered work. So first we see the disciples worry. We see this in the beginning of verse 19. Then the same day at evening, so we're still on that first Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. That sets the scene for us, this scene of worry, this scene of fear. The disciples are together. They're locked away in this room because they are scared. Now, what are they scared of? Well, they're scared of the leaders of the Jews. Now, how did they get into this situation? Again, it's Sunday night. As recently as the previous Thursday, they had been together with their friend, their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus. He had, in the years previous, called them from the lives they had before, the vocations they had before, to follow him, to live among him and learn from him. They'd come from various other walks of life. Some of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. 
From all over, God brought these 12 men in to serve him, to serve Christ. Now, one was no longer with them. This would, of course, be Judas, who betrayed Jesus and then hanged himself after. But the remaining 11, minus Thomas, he doesn't show up till later. Uh, But otherwise, the disciples seem to be gathered here, hiding away, afraid. Now, before that previous Thursday where everything falled apart, things seemed to be going well. This all business with Jesus, it seemed to be taking them somewhere. Jesus had called them to serve him, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And people were following. People were listening. People believed and wanted to follow Jesus as well. Now, this was not without conflict. Jesus was saying some things that the present political and religious establishment, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, they didn't like. Jesus challenged their traditions. He challenged their interpretations of Scripture. He challenged their practices. He even challenged if they were the true people of God. This tension was ever-present in the first few years of Jesus' public ministry. It led to frequent confrontations. But the ministry went on. Miracles were occurring. The sick were being healed. The hungry were being given food. The blind were seeing. The deaf heard. And even the dead were being raised. And these disciples were told that a kingdom was coming and that Jesus would be their king. And again, everything was going well toward that end until that previous Thursday. It was that night that Jesus and his disciples shared the Passover meal together. Now there Jesus taught them many things. He told them that he would be betrayed. Now Peter especially took offense to that implication. Of course, while that's going on, Judas quietly sneaks out the side door. After the meal, Jesus took bread and wine and told them to partake of it as his body and blood in remembrance of him. And then from there, they went to the garden where Jesus prayed and he was so distressed that the drops of blood formed on his face. But his disciples could not even stay awake with him. Then Judas reappeared, though this time with a band of soldiers, and they arrested and took Jesus away. Now, some of the disciples tried to follow and did follow for a while. Peter went to the trial, but where he had been so bold just a few few hours earlier, even turning to violence in the garden to try to free Jesus, Peter at the trial denied knowing Jesus three times. Now, John, the author of this gospel, he was there till the end. He was there with Mary, Jesus' mother. All the other disciples, though, in various times and ways, they ran away. They hid. They deserted Jesus. And Jesus was found guilty. He was condemned. He was crucified. And he died. And it is in light of this where we find the disciples afraid, hiding. Everything had been going so well, and then quickly and spectacularly it all fell apart. Everything they had hoped for, everything they had been told was going to happen, and everything they had left their previous lives behind to pursue seemed over and done. And not only had Jesus died and been taken from them, but there were more pressing and present problems for them. 
There was the danger they faced of having been associated with Jesus, who had been put to death under the influence of these Jewish leaders. Would those same authorities, having taken out the leader, now come back for the followers? This is why we find the disciples afraid. So afraid, they're hiding out in this locked room, hoping not to be found. But as they are hiding away, keeping a low profile, they were receiving some strange reports. They had heard earlier, for instance, as we read from Mary Magdalene, who had seen Jesus or said she had seen Jesus at the tomb. Such a strange account. Now, not only is this a strange account to say that someone they had witnessed dying was back from the dead, but this also comes in a time. This is just the reality of the situation in the first century. The testimony of women was not considered all that credible. Now, we also read that Peter and John, they at least were interested enough that they had a bit of a foot race to the tomb. And isn't it funny how John has to point out who won that foot race to the tomb, and it was not Peter. They at least went to check out what was going on. And we read elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke of this account that they left marveling at what had happened. But again, so far to the disciples, these are strange stories. They're rumors. They're not sure what to make of them. Well, the strange report gets stranger. It, also in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, there is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Again, that same day. It would have been earlier in the day before the disciples were gathered in this room. Two of them claimed to see Jesus and reported back to the other disciples that this had happened. So we have all these strange stories. We have all these things going on, all this talk that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Could it be true? Well, based on how we see the disciples responding, there seems to be some rather significant doubt. For one, they're still hiding away. If they believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, if he was up and walking around somewhere, would they be hiding? Now, they'd probably be out trying to find him, trying to find answers, trying to figure out what has happened. And yet here they are still locked up in this room. But they are in for quite the surprise. Because though they are locked away, who should appear to them at the end of verse 19 but Jesus himself? John reports this appearance in our text, but there is also an additional helpful detail, again in Luke 24, where when Jesus appeared at this gathering, the disciples were startled. They were frightened as though they had seen a spirit. So they were already afraid of the leaders of the Jews and what they might do. But now they're also afraid because someone who they were certain was dead is now there. They think they've seen a ghost. Now, maybe John didn't include that detail because being there, he didn't want to be seen as so afraid. Or maybe he wasn't as afraid. But at least some of the present company was afraid. They, saw, they thought they had seen a ghost. Now, this is an understandable response. When you hear that someone you know, someone you love has died, you don't expect to see them again. Well, in the case of John, he was there at the cross. He witnessed with his own eyes Jesus' death. And yet here Jesus is, walking, talking, coming to see them. 
So we have a shift in their fear. Again, it was from the fear of persecution and death at the hands of the Jews to now fear that we have seen a ghost. This would have to make for a pretty rough day. And this is where we find the disciples at the beginning of this account. A state of worry. Fear of man, fear of those who killed Jesus and that they might come back for them. And now the fear of what appears to be a ghost. But Jesus is going to intervene and transform this situation. And so this brings us to our second point. After the disciples worry, we now turn to their wonder. Jesus, having appeared to the disciples, he speaks. He says at the end of verse 19, peace be with you. Most of these disciples had at the last time they saw Jesus abandoned him, denied him, fallen away from him. If Jesus really was there, you could imagine the fear this would create. Is he angry? Was he there in wrath to take revenge on those who abandoned and left him? But Jesus really was there, not a ghost, and he has come in peace. Now Jesus must deal with this initial problem that the disciples believe him to be a ghost. He did, after all, die. He had just entered a room where the doors were locked. It wouldn't seem like there was any way for him to get in. And so Jesus must stop their fear. And so how does he do this? Verse 20 tells us, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them his very real physical body, how it had been scarred, how it had been damaged, how it had been, as he said at the institution of the Lord's Supper a few days prior, broken for them. We get further details from the other Gospels that not only does he show them the wounds, but he invites them to touch them. And also, we get from the Luke account that he was hungry. He asked them for something to eat, and he does take it and eat it in front of them. Later in John, in chapter 21, he appears to the disciples again at the sea and he asks for some fish and eats it in front of them. Now, why does this matter? Ghosts don't have bodies. Ghosts don't have wounds and scars that you can touch and feel. Ghosts don't eat. They don't need to eat. That belongs to the sphere of physical life, which a spirit, a ghost, would not be concerned with. No, Jesus proves definitively and decisively that he has been physically, bodily raised from the dead. And it is not an accident that these details of the resurrection and how Jesus proves his resurrection are recorded for us. After all, few doctrines of the Christian faith have been doubted or questioned or rejected more than the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, by appearing this way and permitting his disciples to interact with him in this way, he is, he is preemptively silencing critics, those who would doubt, those who would reject his resurrection. Many in ancient times believed that the physical realm and that matter and the body were inherently evil, and to achieve true spiritual life was to be freed from one's body. There were heretics in the early church that argued that Jesus only appeared to be both human and divine, 
And that he was really just divine. He was really just pure spirit. But Jesus is not leaving room for any of these ideas. He's not leaving room for more recent liberal theology that teaches that Jesus was only raised as some nice idea in the hearts and minds of his followers. No, Jesus was raised from the dead in the flesh, in his body. This is the undeniable teaching of God's word. These details are provided so that a fact so critical as Christ's bodily resurrection is not left to doubt, is not left to misinterpretation. And this is important because this resurrection is so vital to us. Just as example, the Heidelberg Catechism records three benefits we receive as Christ's people from his resurrection. It says, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us to share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. So those three benefits hinge on, they depend on the bodily resurrection. The righteousness he has obtained for us, his obedience and suffering to pay the penalty for our sins. Our raising to new life now, the fact that in Christ we are alive though we were spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. And then finally, the pledge and the promise that just as Christ has been raised bodily from the dead, as the first fruits of the dead, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit ago, we too will be raised as he was raised. And this glorious truth of the resurrection produces a response in the disciples, and it should also in us. It should stir within us joy. We see this at the end of verse 20. The disciples were glad. They rejoiced. They were happy when they saw the Lord, when they knew that this was the Lord raised from the dead. And Jesus' book ends his appearance to them by repeating what he said at the beginning. He again says, peace to you. It is essentially a peace sandwich. He starts and he ends letting them know that he has come in peace. Lest any doubt creep in, that is how he has come. But this peace has a purpose. Because Jesus has a job for his disciples to do. So we've looked at the disciples' worry and their wonder. And now we turn to our third and final point, which is work. In light of this great and glorious thing that has happened in Christ's bodily resurrection and appearing, what happens next? Well, what will happen next is that Jesus grants these disciples three things, three elements, three gifts. Sending, the Spirit, and a status. So first, the sending. Jesus tells the disciples in the conclusion of verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus is commissioning them to do something. This isn't just the end of a feel-good story where, oh, Jesus came back from the dead. That's, that's a good ending. That's a happy outcome. Let's roll the credits. No, the resurrection is not the end of the story. It is only the beginning. Because Jesus is sending his disciples. 
He is sending them to do a work. He is sending them to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. But in order for them to do that, they need the proper equipment. And so it is here that they are granted the Spirit. This is what we see in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is giving them the greatest of helps. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to live in them, to dwell in them, to guide them, comfort them, teach them, and be with them always. Now they are given the Spirit here as a foreshadowing of something greater. They receive the power of the Spirit fully at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But here we see a foretaste. Here we see a preparation for what is to come. When they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of new creation, they will embark on this great mission to take this gospel forward to the ends of the earth. And Christ, by His Spirit in this world and in His people, still continues this work. The Spirit is part of the inheritance, part of the possession of all believers. We have the same Spirit that these disciples did. We have very God of very God dwelling in us if we are in Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit in them that empowers them to do the task that they are given in verse 23. In fact, it is the Spirit that does this work through them. If it were not for the Spirit's work, the gospel would not be believed or received by anyone. No, the Spirit applies this gospel in the hearts of those God has chosen for salvation. So Jesus grants the disciples this sending and the Spirit, but He also grants them a status. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now what is going on here? Well, Jesus is in part making a reference to something He previously taught, on the keys of the kingdom. He, he taught those things in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He used similar language there about this forgiveness of sins. But what does this have to do with it? How are sins forgiven here? Well, they are forgiven in those whom God the Father has chosen from the foundation of the earth and who have this redemption applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, many misunderstand what Jesus is giving the disciples here. This status is not that of a priestly mediator who can actually forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. Forgiveness is God's work carried out under God's authority. So why is he telling the disciples this about forgiving sins? Well, what the disciples receive here is an ambassadorship. They're given the work of establishing the church. They are given the work of exercising the keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel and discipline and all the other things that these bring and that they work out through the church. Through the proclamation of the gospel, a church will be built. Forgiveness of sins will come to people. In the book of Acts, that is exactly what these disciples do. Empowered by the Spirit, they are sent forth. They establish a church by the proclamation of the gospel, which is worked by the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of the people. And what an empowering this is. 
How were these disciples when we met them in our text today? They were huddled in a room. They were locked away for fear of the authorities. Within a couple months, Peter and the other apostles, they'll be preaching the gospel boldly, defiantly, in the faces of those very same leaders that they were too scared to face that first Easter Sunday. Many of these disciples will meet their deaths for the testimony of Christ. They'll do so in peace, even in joy, knowing with full confidence given to them by the Spirit that they will live with Christ, they will be raised with Christ, their lives are hidden with Him. And so all of that worry that they had before is taken away, stripped away by the wonder of the risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, which works through them to build a church that works through them to take the gospel to a weak and weary world. And that work continues to this day. A few thousand believed at Pentecost when the full power of the Spirit came down upon them. Millions and millions of people have believed throughout history. And even now, here in South Dakota, where we're separated by thousands of miles and nearly 2,000 years from these events we read about today, the Spirit has enabled this gospel to come and be effective in the hearts and minds of the people. So we have seen today in this account from John's gospel, we've seen worry transformed into wonder and the apostles empowered to do a spirit wrought work. And we see here that because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we along with these disciples have eternal hope and we can do this Spirit-empowered work. It cannot be overstated how important this information is to each and every person here. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came in the flesh. He had a body. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. He never sinned, not even once. And He suffered and died the most horrific and brutal of deaths to pay the penalty for sin. And then on the third day, in his body, he was raised. He has conquered sin and death. Eternal life, the promise of future resurrection glory belong to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ by faith. So is that you today? Do you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead? If you do this, you will be saved. For those of us in Christ today, there is a work. There is a people. There is a church. This gospel and the glorious truths and promises in it are not just for us they are to go to the ends of the earth. They are to go to the places they have not been heard. And so we are to remain joined to this people, joined to the church where there is forgiveness of sins. We are to support its work and mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, furthering this gospel and building up one another in the faith, hoping and believing expectantly that we will be raised as Christ has been raised. But maybe you're here this morning, like someone I mentioned at the beginning of this message, you can relate to where these disciples started. Maybe for you, all seems lost. 
You're besieged by the trials of this life, by loss, by difficulty. There is a hope that transcends all earthly hope and life beyond all earthly life in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, then you can have the confidence even on your darkest of days that Christ is with you. He is for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And even if you suffer as He suffered, even if you die as He died, you will live as He lives. Jesus lives, and so shall we. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the hope that we have in Your resurrection. We know that if it were not for the resurrection, our hope would be in vain. We would remain dead in our sins. And yet you are alive, and so we, your people, are made alive with you. I pray that we would have confidence in this truth, enough to boldly proclaim it where it has not been heard, empowered by your Spirit to do this work. I pray that you would write this truth on our hearts and that it would remain with us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.